Mr. Jamie Reed, Chapter 11 of the Shakespeare Spy. So here I go. Return to life? I said. How is that possible? I do not interpret. I only, I, I can, you only see. I lean forward to get a closer look at the sky ring ball. Don't you suppose you saw out someone? I hesitated, embarrassed. Someone named Judith? She pulled the cloth protectively over the black ball. No. Then on her shrouded, wart, speckled face, I saw something approaching his file. But if you were to send this Judith to me, I could tell her future, and perhaps make certain that you appeared in it. For a price, of course. Of course. Not so not only did she tell her clients that they wished to hear, she would also tell them someone else wanted them to hear. She was clearly a fake, and yet, and yet she had revealed to each of us some one thing that we could not conservatively have wished to hear. That Sam would turn a traitor, that Sapalvi would lose his hair, that I would be the cause of another person's death. Those were hardly the sorts of predictions that were calculated to keep us coming back for more. I got unsteadily to my feet, dizzy from breathing in the smoke, or from too many confusing thoughts buzzing in my brain. I must go. God you good day. A good day, she said, would be a warm one. I glanced at the smoldering sign. You've run out of fuel, then? She nodded and pulled her scarves from more tightly above her. About her. Impulsively, I reached into my purse and brought out my last shilling and laid it on the table to buy coal with. As I left the tent, I thought I heard her murmur something in reply. I could not be sure of the words, but they might have been, May fate be kind to you. Only when I was halfway back to the cross keys did I realize how foolish I had been to give her that shilling. That would I use to pay the fine Mr. Armand, who should have demanded me from Mr. Squirming Praxis. And now, as I discovered that was not the per- only penalty I would be expected to pay, in my per- preoccupation with Judith, I had forgotten all about my costume for the night's performance, and in fact it had not been let out to fit me with our tearing man home ill, and but two hours remaining before performance, it would have to wait. Perhaps no one would notice if I pressed into my service my, if I pressed into service my costume from the Spanish tragedy. But I dug through the trunk of clothing for that play, and there was no sign of Bellantini's gown. Alarmed, I went through the lot again, piece by piece, until I still feared to return it up. Oh, guess, I said to form my head in my hands. So something wrong? said a voice behind me. Hi, I groaned. The gown for this tragedy has come up missing. 
Mr. Henning scratched down next to me. I hate to tell you this, Midge, but we're not doing the Spanish tragedy this evening. I came back, but me dressed for two gentlemen no longer fits, and I thought I'd sub- stu- substitute this one, only it's gone. Mr. Henning sighed heavily, as though he'd heard this same tale before and was weary of it. That's unfortunate, but I'm not surprised. It's the fourth item that's disappeared in as many weeks. If someone's stealing them, do you wish? I'm afraid it's a possibility. Of course, it's also possible that they were that they're still at the globe somewhere, though I doubt it. Richard is always very careful in packing the costumes. I suppose it'll come out of new wages then. I'm sorry, but that's our rule. We can't make an exception for you. If we find out who the thief is, assuming the there is this, there is one, we'll return the money to you. He got stiffly to his feet. Now, let's see about the other gown. When I tried it on, the hem proved to be, as you have guessed, several inches too short, and no matter how Mr. Hemmings tugged at the back of my bodice, the hooks and eyes could not be made to meet. Well, I don't have much time. If you'll see to the hooks and eyes, I let down the hem. Provided you thread the needle for me, my eyes are not what they were. Though, like all princesses, I had made my share of emergency repairs, I was not great hand with the needle. Before I had managed to move all the dozen hooks and eyes to their new positions, I must have dropped each of them at least twice. Several were never seen again. Mr. Hemming's needlework, however, was swift and sure. When I committed upon, commented upon this, he laughed. You have been on the road as many times as I have, without benefit of seamstress or tearing man. You learn to do your, your for yourself. Will we go on the road again this summer, Eunice? He paused and rubbed thoughtfully at his gray leash. It's hard to say at this point, but what we do will depend largely upon the plague. What the plague does. I hope it will not come to that. Our position is precautious enough as it is. If we to, if we had to close down the theater for several months, it could be he broke off then as though he had said too much and went back to his stitching. Well, as I said, I hope not. Though I did not wish to pry into matters that I did not concern me, I had an uneasy feeling that this did concern me. Are we 
Is this company in difficulty then? Mr. Hemmings considered for several moments before the reply before replying. A bit, but we'll weather it. We're all we always have. He gave me a rather worn smile. In any case, there was no need for you or the other princesses to worry. Let us sharers to do the worrying, all right? I would willingly have obeyed him. I had more than enough on my mind already. But worry is like the plague, or it seems like love. It's no good at all ignoring or denying it. Once the seed had found its way inside you, you're doomed. Even had I succeeded in the casting aside my concern, it would have not been long. As we players stood in the cramped space behind the stage, listening to the audience arrive and trying to judge from the sound of them that the mood were in Mr. Shakespeare, still dressed in his street clothes, burst through the door that led to the outside stairway, bringing with him a gust of frigid air, which he called above the din of the playgoers. I, I made my way toward him through the shifting mass of actors applying their face paint, adjusting their costumes, mumbling their lines to themselves, making all sorts of curious sounds meant to limber up their voices. I was within his, when I was within his reach, Mr. Shakespeare drew me to him. The master of revels sends a word that some men from the Queen's private council are out there tonight checking up on us. Is there something amiss with our private? He laughed. The Privy Council is the body of Her Majesty's closest advisors. No doubt they hope to catch us feeding the masses some morsel of papist propaganda as the priest gives out morsels of the host at communion. I imagine Hansel has put them up to it. Our sharers had long suspected the manager of Admiral's men of mounting various strategies to ensure our reputation or our wealth. That is, the amount of money we look in, including attaching Mr. Shakespeare, including, including attaching our, um, attaching Mr. Shakespeare's well-known name to plays written by Henswell's own common tea of hacks. If inciting Puritan preachers to stand outside our globe railing at the playgoers, even planting his... Planting his men in our audience, where they shouted insults at the actors. Have you a line about confession? Do you not? I, Englemore says, where shall we meet? And I say, at Friar Patrick's cell, where I intend holy confession. Yes, yes, but I want you 
to replace that line. Well, what? You'll think of something. There are there any other poppish shorts of screeches that you call? Nay, but the sound of Mr. Phillips' outboy signaled that the play was about to commence. Mr. Shakespeare glanced down at his everyday doublet and breeches. By the mat, he whispered. I nearly forgot I'm playing the Duke. He left as the per, as perpetuously as he had come, leaving me to invent some new bit of dialogue for myself. Well, if I had any hope at all of living up to my best, to my boast of writing a play, surely. I could conjure up a line of half of passable in medic pretentiness. If nothing else, that the effort would give me something to do besides read, which is that I was ordinarily doing at this point in the performance. Mr. Pope had assured me that certain amount of beer before going on was a good thing. Without freaks, he was fond of saying, "There is no music, but none of the other actors, not even the Flintesses, looked as though they were going to face the hangman, as I had been told I did." Salpalzi was examining himself in the looking glass, touch, ch- touching the locks of his blonde wig. As though wishing they were his own, Sam dressed in a gown borrowed from the "As You Like It" trunk, though stood next to me at the stage right curtain, whistling a tune under his breath and practicing a little jig step for Mr. Phillips had taught him. I took a deep breath. Or as deep as I could manage, considering how tightly my ribs were bound by the bodice of my dress, and and tired to compose a line and to replace the censored one. Where shall we meet, Tatoni? Tung, uh, Tatoni, Behind the Abbey Wall? No. Some more just place. When I glanced again at Salpulvi, who played my romantic adversary Julia, a clever though totally unsuitable possibility entered my head. Let's meet in Julia's room, where I intend to strangle her, with her with her wig. What are you singing about? Sam asked softly. Oh, nothing. I was just thinking of strangling Julia. Sam nodded, as though, as though this were a perfectly responsible proposal. May I help? This set me laughing again so violently that I had to cover my mouth to avoid being heard on the other side of the table. Careful, Sam said. You'll burst your bodice. I. That when I had gotten my mirth under control, he said, "I hear you've lost a costume too." 
Aye, between that and five for missing swimming patients, I'm afraid I'll have no money to help you out. No matter, Mr. Hemmings has promised to the house with the household withhold only a shilling he keeps. You'll still receive two shillings then? That's good. That's more than you imagined. Something about those words struck me as odd, or perhaps familiar. I had to mull it over for a moment before I realized where I had heard them before. Sam, I whispered, a cunning woman's prediction. What about it? She said, you will receive more money than you imagine. He stared at me. No, that can't be what she meant. Can it? But out on the stage, Will Sly, or Proteus, delivered the last line of the scene. I fear my Julia will not dine my lines, receiving them from such a worthless spot. Saul Palby appeared beside us. That's our cue. He looked toward Sam, but Sam seemed not to hear. He was shaking his head in disbelief. That can't be what she meant, she repeated. I had to plant my foot on his neither end the purple him into the stage. Though Mr. Shakespeare was disturbed at having members out of the private council in the audience, and much preferred their presence to Judith. I was distracted enough just thinking about her in the abstract. I had her there in flesh would certainly hadn't done me completely. Just in case I should happen to forget my infiltration with her for a second or so, the play seemed specially designed to make certain I would not, for Sir Palby's first speech. But say, Ludica, now we are all alone, wouldst thou then counsel me to fall in love? To the end, when Mr. Shakespeare spoke the line with, with which Sam had teased me earlier in the day, I think the boy has grace in him. He blushes. The one thing I did manage to forget was the need to think up a new line until the very scene was upon me. When Mr. Arman, as Eglamore asked, where shall we meet? I froze. Seeing that I was speechless, he did as any good player would. He prompted me. Shall we meet at the fire? He began. No one tripped but frantically at my voice crackling. Let's not. Let, let's meet somewhere else in, in the forest. Mr. Arman was so was too seasoned an actor to let this throw him. An excellent idea, our your ladyship said. He said, when we met behind the stage later, he gave me a look of mock and discouragement. In the forest, it it was all I could think of. I protest. At least I said no rather than nay. Oh, why did you say it all? I don't. Why did you say it at all? I was about to cover for you. Mr. Shakespeare told me 
put the line about Friar, pra- Friar Patrick. At essays, there's a wife from Privy Council out there. A pox on the Privy Council, muttered Mr. Armand. They were here last week as well for Romeo and Juliet. John Lowen had to amend his line about going to confession. No doubt they would have been even happier had we made Friar Lawrence an Anglican priest. He smacked a fist into his palm. They've ne- never bothered us before. Why now? And why should they pick the very place that happened to references to Catholic rites in them? Perhaps because the plays are set in Italy? Perhaps, Mr. Armand said. Or perhaps something is keeping the private council apprised of everything we do. You mean... I mean, he said, a spy. So that was chapter 11. Bye, guys. See you later. See you later. See you later. See ya. See ya. Later. Bye, guys.